So maybe little known fact, uh, this all started in the Mother's Brewing Company backyard during Oktoberfest in 2016. Yep. You'd been pushing me to do a podcast for a long time. Mm -hmm. Hated the idea because I know how I sound. Yes. And so we got really drunk in the Mother's Brewing Company backyard during Oktoberfest, and we devised this whole this whole framework, the six beers, the rating system, the topic per beer, everything, no more than 100 yards from where we currently sit, ready to record an episode. So cheers to Mother Bre Brothers Brewing Company for being the impetus for all this. Cheers. Hi, welcome to Mix Six. I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is a podcast where we drink six beers and talk about six random things as a way to deduct our beer on taxes. And as I am currently sitting in Mother's Brewery and they've given me two beers and I've not paid for them yet, nor do Single I intend to, I am living the dream. It's free people. Um, so this is a free podcast where you can sort of get on board, see if you like what we're doing before you hit us up on the Patreon or check out our free version on themix6.com. And iTunes. And iTunes. Yeah. And where other, other fine podcasts are sold. Do you have a store? I don't know. A podcast store? No. You have a weird town if I don't you do. Think that's anyway, um, we are here at Mother's Brewing. We're talking to the people that work there as they know way more about beer than us. Uh, and uh, they are one of our favorite breweries on earth. Amen. So uh, we are going to have six conversations while drinking six beers on air. I'll probably drink more than six beers. Right. But um, yeah, two free. Don't know if you heard. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's and pretty awesome. That's the mix six. So we're going to dive right in. See you on the other side. Kyle, the brewery liaison, is that the correct title? A proper nomenclature? Brewery liaison, brand ambassador, tap monkey. You can call me what you want <laughs> as long as monkey. you call me. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right, and I am drinking Snapback. It is... Uh-oh, he's tasting it live, people. Hmm. Oh, as good as I remember it, because I had everything here, and it's okay. wonderful. Okay. Um, and I think you could talk about it more eloquently than I. So why don't you tell us a little about Snapback? Well, I'll do my best. Uh, Snapback, India Pale Ale. Uh, we make a lot of India Pale Ales here mm -hmm, at Mother's mm -hmm. Brewing Company. Well, you have no choice if you're an American craft brewer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In particular, we call this a West Coast-style India Pale Ale, uh, and that typically signifies that hops are always going to be the superstar, the showcase of the recipe, uh, that's true of any IPA, but in particular, the malt bill is going to be downplayed. It's going to be there just for the basis of showcasing the amazing aroma, flavor, and bitterness that hops can bring to a beer. And that's what we're dealing with here. So Classic I, West Coast style. When I drink a snapback, Kyle, what should I, what should I be expecting? It better be aromatic. Uh-huh. It better be flavorful. Yep. With the kind of classic, like, citrus and fruity kind of, like, aroma and flavor that we associate with American Pacific Northwest hops. It should be crisp. Yep. It could, should be dry. It should be easily drinkable. Uh, yeah. You take one drink, you're going to be ready for the next one. Awesome. Immediately. Yeah, no, it's quite good. So this is Snapback by Mothers. In Club, what are we talking about? So, um... 
I kind of wanted to start them off on the goofy food foot rather than us. So right. we talked yeah. about we're we're sponsoring a game night here at the Mother's Tasting Room, and I'm super excited about that because that's, right. that's part of our brand here at the Mix Six. We like to play board games, that's especially while drunk. Um, and I was sort of interested, and in, we pitched this, and I'm super excited to give it a try. In that, I find that you don't play a lot of board games, Kyle. I have problems with board games. Uh, it's not, not a pro- it's not a problem, but like your rationale is what, as a board game enthusiast, yeah. I find the most interesting. I, I don't, I don't have a problem with the conception of board games. Mm-hmm. I like the abstract concept. I love the intricacy of the endeavor. What I don't like is the way other human beings. Approach board games. There it is. That's what we're, so this is dissecting our fun, which is our standard first segment where we talk about either a specific game, a concept in multiple games, or our philosophical approaches to board games. And Caleb and I were struck by, Kyle, your rules lawyering. You, sir, are a stickler for what must happen based on what it says inside the booklet for a game. But here, here's what I was struck by. Kyle abstained because he recognized that his rules lawyering was sometimes not the norm in right. the human interaction. Right. And so as to ensure the fun of other people at the table, yes. he heroically self-sacrificed himself, right. which, with the concept of rules lawyering in Boar's games, is somewhat rare. It is. Because most of the time, a rules lawyer wants to play a board game. They want to play a specific board game. That's right. And they want to ruin your life doing it. Whereas Kyle... Not that way. Avoid the risk. Yeah. So if we want to set the scene, then we can go back to the scene from <laughs> The Big Lebowski mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. Walter draws a gun because <laughs> right. over the line, mark it as a foul. It's zero, dude. Yep, yep, yep. It's absolutely true. Okay, so I get that that resonates with you. Uh, but I've got to be honest. I've known you for a long time. Mm-hmm. You are hands down one of the most creative people I've ever met. Your your brain lives outside the box, and that's what I love about you. You're just so abstract and so creative. And yet I see you then in these moments of shared fun, board games, and to hear you talk about them as these coloring inside the lines, black and white, non-creative spaces just strikes me because it violates what I think of when I think of you. Talk well, to me about what that is. So this is the purpose of gaming. Gaming is harnessing the capacity for imagination and creativity inside very specific guidelines, uh, particularly if we're talking about the more immersive experiences, your RPGs and things like this. If you do not want to abide by the rules that have been established, then you should go join an improv class because you want to write a play. So, like, this is so, I'm, I'm, I'm literally swimming in this. So, <laughs> I have talked at length on this podcast before about how difficult RPGs are for me because they seem to not live inside a defined space where I can follow a linear narrative from A to Z. And, and yet the other side of that spectrum to me is the hyper-defined, hyper-limited, these are the only things which can occur because of the rules. Caleb, where do you land on this thing? Somewhere in the middle? On the far right? On the far left? What, what happens for you in terms of rules lawyering? Uh, so I will say tomorrow night, during the board game night, uh, That's right. Kyle, if you would like to play a game with me, I would be thrilled to do so. Not gonna invite you. <laughs> right, right, uh-huh, uh-huh. Cause I don't think you're gonna like my style. Because um, I basically think the context of a board game is an excuse in which to have some rules to facilitate human interaction. So when we play board games, we do nominally follow the rules and we do look at sure. them. But the point is not to win a game 
It is not to cooperatively win a game. Right. It is to be amongst fellow humans. And drink. Usually drinking some lovely mother's beer. That's right. And have this sort of social interaction. And that's, for me, the final goal. But I do come from the RPG space, in which you have this militant wing of rules lawyering that, unlike you, Kyle, do not represent themselves well, and they don't have a philosophically consistent basis. And then you have this other end where it's like, I very much would not like to flip through 18 books to look up a rule right. if, like, we have this sort of, like, emotionally powerful moment for your improv character. Because if you want to go improv class, that's negating. And there is an element of that in, in like, a looser tabletop space. Now, like, I want to play Monopoly however the fuck I want to. Yeah, fuck that. Yeah, right, no, we're not right. playing Monopoly. Right. It's a terrible game. We shouldn't play it. But I feel like there are liminal spaces in which the rules aren't like strictly labeled or the rules are meant to facilitate an experience. And if the rules get in the way of that experience, perhaps we should bypass the rules. I'm not sure what sort of like bonus your podcast gets for you using the word liminal. But <laughs> oh, a lot of bonus. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yeah. Well, now, here we go. Listen. <laughs> what is the definition of a game? Okay, so a confined... Confined by what? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, but see, I think Caleb's raised an interesting point here, right? Which is, so games are confined by context and by rules and by players, right? I mean, can, can we think of other, other confining or constricting elements of a game? Rules, players, context. That's got to be kind of like the core. So materialism. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sure. The like, class of all the players. But, but there is probably something in the nugget of that, which is like also the physical things with which one plays the game. Yeah, okay? yeah. In some weird way, right? But but your argument, club. What I'm hearing is that context is probably more binding than rules or people, and that the context should set a stage. But whatever happens in that stage, if it's appropriate to the setting, might be more important than the limiting factor, which is defined in terms of the rules booklet. Mm-hmm. Whereas you, Kyle, seem much more interested in in treating the rules booklet. So let me ask this question then: How do we feel as a group about the house rule? Right. Not a rule defined in the bur- booklet, but is a rule Bullshit. set. Bullshit. No, but wait, wait, wait. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's easy. <laughs> Podcast is over. We have nothing else to talk about. Okay. Bullshit. Well, that was the shortest segment ever. All right. So let me try then to say, which is, it seems to me the house rule is a nice permutation of what you're both doing here. So a house rule is a de- an, an agreed upon but defined rule, which would limit the game, but the house rule is often a function of context. So why is that not the best antidote to this kind of disagreement in that which mo- should be most limiting? In well, a I think we setting? can look back to the founders of our very republic and therefore the <laughs> That's where we're very going. philosophers who, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. uh, back to ancient Greece, uh-huh. which is to say that... Uh, Democracy as a noble idea, uh, the idea of mob rule, the pure democratic rule of the majority over the idea of principle is problematic, which is why we live in a republic now and not a pure democracy. And you can apply this to the same five people sitting around a table playing Monopoly, which is wherein four people, and that would be my wife (laughs) and my three children, saying, no, you put all the, like, community chess money in free parking. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) 
All I'm saying is that is if we don't have clearly defined rules, if we just leave it up to the house rules where any given party is sitting around and going, well, no, it's just house rules now, well, then we don't have rules at all. And if we don't have rules at all, we don't have social order. And if we don't have social order, then we are left to... It's just all Jumanji. That's right. Well, no, if you don't have social order, you're left with Ayn Rand. And is that what you want, Caleb? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Caleb, is that what you want? Is that what okay, you want? Okay, false uh-huh. academy. Uh-huh. You're assuming you cannot att- attain unanimous decision in a house rule, which in most house rules they are unanimously decided upon. So I understand that you're a hardliner and you abs- you resist compromise. And I get that, and I'm fine with it. But um, if everyone agrees in this hypothetical scenario in which everyone is okay with changing the rule in one specific way, is that still playing the game to you, or have we gone out? Okay, you got me there. That is, in fact, (laughs) playing the game. It's not playing the game. It's playing a game. It's playing a game. And as if you've seen my board game shelf, I'm not dedicated to playing a game. Right, right. Like, I, you know, I I, I like games as a concept, but... I guess what I'm saying is, is that if you've ever played a game, this would be any game, under house rules... Versus the established rules that are published with the game itself. How do you connect to other people playing through house rules? You have no common denominator if you do not accept the overarching superstructure of the game itself. You are effectively separating yourself from the rest of the game-playing community by making up your own rules based on the context of your experience at the moment, and you now are effectively operating against the spirit of gameplay. Yeah, Caleb, you game fascist. So do designers themselves get out of that? Because designers go through additions of their own rules, of their own games. Designers themselves change their rules and revise them over the years. So oh, have man. they thereby separated themselves of the game? Should the next edition be labeled? Well, the author different? is dead. I mean, I think we all agree on that. I, right. Yeah. And if the Are author is dead, who gives a shit what I do right with now? his rules? Right. Okay. Producer Ross is an avid gamer. I want to tag you in here. So where are we on the rules versus context debate? And how do we feel about the house rule? Uh, house rules uh, rule because uh, the Monopoly, Monopoly in particular is a terrible game. Yeah, we're using and a bad awful. example here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you need house rules to make it playable or, you know, uh, or just bring knives to the table because that's... <laughs> but that's just speed it up. Like, <laughs> no, but, but that's the point with. of Monopoly is the whole point is that it was yeah. a just social game. <laughs> no, it was a social game too. Right. Illustrate, right. illustrate the inequity of the entire social structure. So, but it's modifying those rules concept. to make it a better play for a game yeah. is it's it's. But it's n- undercutting the point but, of the but game. New editions of Monopoly do not come with an essay explaining, "Hey, guess what? Capitalism is terrible." You know. Well, the first editions didn't either. Yeah. So, well, yeah. but they have a link now yeah. that you can go to their. Blog, I think. <laughs> I don't Did think Parker not? Brothers. This know. is the lady we stole the game. Hasbro's not really interested in explaining <laughs> why capitalism is bad. Um, I think, uh, uh, yeah, 
I, I am in general in favor of, uh, yeah, consensual, mutually agreed upon house rules. I don't think, uh, that's a problem because the thing is, as a game designer, I know that game design itself is a flawed process. If we accept that the game designer is this distant overlord who is imperfect, who is perfect and, uh, cannot be, ch- his word cannot be changed. I mean, you're just, are you a game design originalist? Is that, is that your argument that the game designer is inerrant, um, or that his, his work cannot be improved upon? At the game, the game itself as an abstract uh, entity, yes, the designer is inerrant, which is to say that if you are entering into the playing of this game, then you are accepting the rules of. Now, when we're talking about the games that we're talking about that we choose to enter in, whether that's Thursday night, that's Tuesday night here at Mother's Brewing Company starting <laughs> at 5 p.m., uh-huh. or if it's the games that we live inside, uh, that's a different, because we don't choose that, but the game itself has a set of rules and if you choose to enter into that game then you accept those and if you don't accept those then again you should sign up for an improv class because you're trying to write a play so maybe not inerrant but imperceptible you can't really understand the designer's vision unless you treat it as written the word as law so you could the play the word as law. You could you could play a game, you could acknowledge that game as being bad or poorly designed, but only if you do so by the rules. Yes. Failing to fix it, doing anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. We all must suffer equally under the diviner's vision or ascend equally under the designer's vision. We in putting that in ourselves is to betray the design. So I feel like that is. Also, I have to say, how often does Ross get to actually like <laughs> Contribute here. Typically more in often because we have more microphones. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I was just like right. talking Materialism. about designers there are less and rules and hierarchies yeah. and everything. Three this was, right. he, got, he got to contribute a lot more before he yelled, I'm a fucking professional on one podcast. And since then, we've kind of turned his mic off. Well, Kyle, I really appreciate a philosophical hardline on this issue. Worded so eloquently. Yeah, here's what here's what's, here's what's interesting to me. It's like what we've learned so far is that Kyle is a fascist, but also sometimes you're a fascist. <laughs> but I'm never a fascist. So so under I'm that only, note, are you are you? Yeah, that's your segue. Yeah, yeah. Only you. That's my noted. whole takeaway here. Yeah, I'm a game fascist. I'm never a political fascist or a beer fascist. So what I heard was you're sometimes a fascist and Caleb is sometimes a fascist. So on that note, here's what we're gonna do next. And uh, if you choose when you're a fascist. Are you actually a fascist? Can we just get out of this segment? <laughs> yeah. It's gone so horribly wrong. So we're going to get some more beers, and then we're going to do something super cool. We're going to move into professional drinking, and we're going to bring the lab guy and the, the head brewer in for Mothers, and we're going to talk about the science and then the art of brewing yeah, beer. we're going to nerd out in a completely different way. Right. Yeah. So we'll see you on the other side with more beer. usually have a segment called professional drinking mm-hmm. this episode we've actually got two segments called professional drinking because this one's called actually professional actually drinking. professional drinking because we're sitting with <laughs> professional drinkers and makers yeah, yeah so it actually yeah the rest of it was a sham <laughs> yeah this is fucking real and so anyways since we're sitting here with the guys who make the fucking beer uh we wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, mother's lil helper ipa so uh dave talk to me about I- the lil helper yeah, so Little Helper started just as sort of a uh, hybrid style. A lot of the beers we make are just kind of mashups. 
Uh, I think one of the things we said a, a lot early on was that we brew sort of for flavor and not so much to style. So especially in our core three, we ended up with uh, beers that are blends of uh, different ideas and different styles. Yeah. So Little Helper started out, and uh, this beer has actually changed some uh, over its lifespan. As far as, uh, especially compared to the other three, it's the most dynamic of the three of them. Huh. Um, and it's probably evolved the most sure. um, compared to the rest. But it's kind of a mashup of a, uh, a typical uh, American West Coast IPA, or I guess probably just a straight-up American IPA, yeah. um, using predominantly uh, Pacific Northwest hops, uh, slightly older world hops to the American brewing tradition. Um, so we use a big chunk of Cascade and an even larger dose of uh, Centennial mm-hmm. in this beer, as well as uh, some other smaller hops uh, to a, a varying degree, Columbus and uh, Simcoe, to lend a nice sort of like floral, fruity flavor and aroma. And then uh, we also, but then that's balanced out by a, uh, a malt bill that's a little bit more robust than a typical American IPA. A little bit more of kind of an English malt bill. So yeah. that's sort of the, the, the mashup of the two. What was the idea behind adding that kind of malty flavor to an IPA? Well, so it's uh, it wasn't necessarily my recipe. Right. Um, so even though I've worked here since the beginning, it was uh, it was our former managing brewer's recipe yeah. that started out with it. And I think for him, it was all about balance, creating a beer that uh, fit in the Midwest and stood out as being something sort of unique and different uh, from what was already out there. Sure. But I, I think he really enjoyed balanced beers uh, yeah. and beers that, uh, yeah, drank uh, with a, with a, nothing nothing really sticking out too far or standing out too far. And that's yeah. actually one of the things that I talk about that beer evolving that has evolved a little bit. You know, I think we came out of the gate a little heavy with the malt bill on that beer and have since dialed it back and stayed very true to the essence of what that beer is yeah. and achieved the same things while letting the, uh, the hop bill uh, shine through a little bit more dominantly for sure since it's a day kind of like stories about how we got to this point if i remember correctly and before you jump into the science of the day that you and i randomly ran into each other three years after having not spoken because yeah, we, we were drinking a little we were fucking drinking little mm-hmm. helper together so this this beer matters in the course of this podcast so so dave for our listeners what do you do here at mothers real quick so i'm the head brewer here head brewer and uh we also have brad with us brad what is your uh job uh i suppose i am the lab manager so. The lab man. Okay. So as, as this is... guy, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I, I deal with yeast management. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And. So um, for those not familiar with the podcast, that is more eloquent speak about beer than we've had anything 13 ever done at this yes, point. Absolutely. Um, so we're really trying to catch up. So I, I think we're... I fear we're putting the cart for the horse. Right. Um, so... Um, I've never like home brewed. Uh, as far as I am concerned, beer is just manna that rains from heaven, um, and so I know nothing about like the science of it. And I think many of our listeners might be interested in that uh, because you know there's an interesting chemical stuff. So, so lab guy, Brad, mm-hmm. lab guy, Brad the lab guy. We need you to come in and educate us on on how this wonderful elixir comes to be. Okay, so I guess I'm going to kind of describe the process from. Uh, Basically, I'll start at the malting process, go through the hot side uh, of making worts, and then we'll get into the cold side Fucking of things. Fucking A. Um, do you have an actual lab? Right. Yes. I do have an actual lab. Do you building, get to I'm, wear a coat? Uh, 
I have the option to wear a coat, but... Uh, the way you're saying that... That's good enough. Sense. It's no, good enough. Really I'll take it. Right. I'm kind of sequestered upstairs, so no one really sees me, so <laughs> okay. it, it kind of... You can wear whatever away. you want upstairs. It's kind of I depressing. Mm. <laughs> uh, all right, so, yeah, Brad, take us through kind of the early process of okay. building a beer. Well, well, we'll start with malting. So even before uh, we handle the grain at all, um, the grain has to be malted well you can't use some unmalted unmalted grains uh, but the process of malting is basically um, taking the grain kernel hydrating it allow it to germinate so basically you're getting those enzymes going break breaking down longer chain sugars uh, to be later consumed by the yeast Um, so and then you can kiln the grain halt that process and then you can um basically bake it for uh, however long you want to at you know uh, whatever temperature you desire to do you guys uh, do that stuff in-house or is that all done before it gets before it gets to the brewery so uh, once it's malted um, the grain is milled or crushed Uh um, and what that's going to do is just kind of expose those sugars and uh, longer chain starches in the kernel itself Um, but you don't really want to obliterate the grain mm-hmm. you want to leave the husk intact because that's going to ask act as uh, it's going to assist in the filter bed of in the mash so it's important to leave that husk intact holy shit um, this is all before this fucking shit gets to you this is all before the Jesus. mash <laughs> okay so you cool. have to prepare the grain properly right yes um, so the mash is is mixing liquor liquor is a uh, beer term mm-hmm. used by brewers mm-hmm. uh, to basically, it's it's water used in the brewing process. Oh, okay. So, oh, so it's not fun liquor. Different, not, different than we might use the non, term liquor. Non-alcoholic liquor. Like it's on like this podcast, we get liquor. Fun liquor. Right. That's it's right. It's like the horrible. Pre, I have exercised. I need a drink of liquor. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Pre-fun liquor. Okay. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so you add the quote-unquote liquor. Okay. So let's take some liquor from the liquor room. Uh-huh. Uh, mix it with uh, the grist. So the milled grain is now called grist. Uh-huh. Um, so what you're doing is kind of making a sugary porridge type uh, soup, mm. and um, uh, I guess the the range of temperatures would be about in the higher 140 degree Fahrenheit to high 150s. Am I? Yeah, typically right? like 149 is a popular target sort of mash temp- temperature for us. At that point, we're going to get a really fermentable wort. Um, there's two major enzymes inside your mash that you're trying to optimize um, and balancing water temperature and pH uh, within your mash seems to, and I guess sort of the water to grist ratio within your mash, so how much water for how much grain you have, uh, creates differently uh, optimal environments for those enzymes to act. So one is alpha amylase and the other one is beta amylase. Um, and in the type of mashing that we do, which is just single infusion mashing, where we will hit one single temperature and hold it there for a period of time, those are the two main ones that we're interested in. Uh, there's all sorts of different kinds of mashing. There's uh, In the German tradition, there's decoction mashing, where they will run off portions Watch of the mash. Watch David. This is a family podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and cook it and then send it back to the mash tun to effectively raise the temperature inside that mash. And then the German or the Belgian brewing tradition uh, uses a lot of uh, turbid mashing, 
which is similar to decoction in a lot of ways, but uh, is also very different. So, but for us, and largely in the I think American brewing tradition, uh, single or top-down infusion mashing is the most common, and that's because we're dealing with highly modified malts, mm-hmm. malts that come to us with high diastatic powers and with very uh, friable sugars um, that are easily unlocked by the enzymes sure. inside of our mash. Sure. Um, quick question before we continue to run down this, uh, frankly, uh, almost frightening path of chemistry um, <laughs> to get beer. Where, so like like Brad, where, Dave, where did you guys learn this stuff, right? Like if someone wants to understand this level of beering, where what does one do? That's what you guys call yourself, right? Beerers? Yeah, beerers. One who beers. Senior beerer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I started here near five years ago, and when I started, um, I knew next to nothing. I knew next to nothing about, uh, well, I knew I was familiar with the brewing process, right. uh, but my background's uh, in biology and chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew I liked craft beer. I, I liked drinking craft beer. Yeah. Um, I knew what I liked, but I didn't really know. Uh, much about the process so i could truly say that in these past five years i've i've learned all of this stuff here at mother's brain company damn yeah dave i I think we were both lucky to have uh, a managing brewer who uh at the time brian the, the the gentleman who hired both of us yeah uh that was intensely knowledgeable and uh you know you you ask him a question and you you know, 45 minutes later, find out <laughs> uh-huh. that he knows way fucking more about right. this than anyone you've ever met. Um, with that said, I mean, Brad comes to this with a, a very strong uh, science background. And so at, as he as he starts to understand like how, how these or I've seen uh, in those five years as he started to put together like, oh, all that's happening here is like enzymatic reactions right. you know it, it's amazing how quickly those things click together sure. and you know so once he gets a concept you know it's just unfolded before him and yeah. he goes oh i know how this fucking works sure sure um i just haven't pointed that light at brewing yet yeah um i mean for me it came from me being uh uh in a in a dead-end degree program at the university I was choosing to uh, pour my money into at the time mm-hmm. and realizing that uh, I didn't want to be a music teacher and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing with my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, I'd gotten into homebrewing as a hobby. Well, I won't even say as a hobby. I'd gotten into homebrewing with this crazy wild hair that I was going to teach myself how to make beer and uh, that I was going to work at a brewery. And somehow... Uh, that seemed to pan out. That's literally what you did. That's literally what I did. Holy shit. Um, and so I come at this with a homebrewing background, um, getting into it, reading as much as I could. I mean, to, to homebrewers that listen to this podcast, uh, I will give a quick plug that, uh, I mean, this is obvious information that we live in a world where you can learn anything you choose to want to learn mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. on Google. And that's literally fucking insane right like that's awesome all of it is there yeah it's all there and if you can't find it google how to find it <laughs> right, so right, one, right you're always one just, step away just right. email me and i'll type it into let me google right. that for that's you right. and yeah. send, send yeah. you the link um but uh yeah it's it's there's just there's now more than ever and they're coming out all the time um an unbelievable amount of in print books uh you know 
wikis, communities online of people that are talking about this stuff. Uh, it's it's unreal, right. and there are so many brewers that have broken into this industry in the way that that I did. Right. That the way in which they are turning around and reaching back to the communities that they've stepped out of and into professional brewing is un like completely unprecedented. Yeah. That's it's, super cool. It's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. So okay, so lots of opportunities. So bootstrap yourself up to drunk. That's right. Is what I'm hearing. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Make make your own things to drink. Right. Uh, so I, I do have back to the science. Right. Yep. Sorry. Uh, Total so, derail. No, it's fine. No, nope. Brad, it's on me. <laughs> the word yeast makes me deeply uncomfortable. Right. Yet I know it's mm-hmm. somehow pivotal to this process. Mm-hmm. Save it for me. Mm-hmm. Save that vocabulary word for me. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> yeast is uh, in the fungi category so it's going to be a single single cellular uh eukaryote uh, it's not helping what the fu- what the it's fuck are you helping. doing i feel like did you're you just hear, did you trolling, hear the brief trolling uh, me brad mm-hmm. okay okay so <laughs> yeah let, let me put it simply so so yeast uh um are in the fungi family obviously mm-hmm. um and they are able to uh go through the process of respiration and they're also able to go through the process of anaerobic fermentation. So um, when the wort or the sugary liquid that comes from the brew house goes over to the fermenter, it gets cooled, you add the yeast. Um, you're also going to add a little bit of oxygen uh, to the wort, and you add the oxygen because you want that yeast to undergo uh, some aerobic respiration. You want, it to, you want it, that yeast to grow uh, before it starts the fermentation process. Okay. Um, so the oxygen is going to help it build the sterols and use its uh, uh, glycogen backup reserves when it goes dormant in order to uh, grow new cells. So after the respiration occurs, it goes, uh, which we also call the lag phase or pre-fermentation uh, in the cellar. Okay. Uh, we're going to undergo the exponential growth phase. Um, so at that time... Uh, the yeast are producing new cells. They're also um, undergoing a process called fermentation, which uh, allows the yeast to um, survive and get energy back without using oxygen. Yep. So uh, they're going to consume the sugars and the wort, and then instead of growing new cells, they're going to produce uh, mainly carbon dioxide and ethanol, which we love so much in our beer. So Jesus. Nice. Okay. So that's what yeast does. Cool. Yeah. So the cool thing about that whole process as well is that, you know, you you listen to that and you think like, oh, well, what they produce is CO2, which we basically just let off gas to atmosphere. Um, And then they also produce ethanol. Right. So you might think, well, why couldn't I just take some flavors similar to the flavors I create in the brew house? Um, You know, cook, cook some wort maybe at a lower level and then just sort of blend that. With ethanol, that's what it, that, that is what I was thinking. Dave. And You're totally of, right. Instead right. of instead of undergoing this entire process that takes weeks upon weeks, um, just make it in a day. You know, basically just make flavored ethanol. Um, but the yeast, other than just producing uh, the you know those natural by- byproducts during that growth phase and then throughout fermentation, undergo all these secondary processes associated with their growth phase and then the, the the resulting fermentation phase. So they go through growth until they deplete all of that oxygen. Mm-hmm. And then once the oxygen is gone, 
they switch from respiration to anaerobic fermentation. And it's at that point that they start producing CO2 and, uh, and uh, ethanol. And, but, uh, you know, during the first portion, so there's the lag phase, yep. then there's the growth phase. Exponential growth phase. Exponential growth phase. And <laughs> while, they're, while, they're, while they're growing, um, they're producing, uh, you know, uh, high, higher al- high alcohols. And yep. then... So, um, so growth, um, d- during yeast growth, they... Yeah, they, they produce fusel alcohols, um, higher temperatures, um, and also factors that promote growth like uh, oxygen or even underpitching your yeast not or not adding enough yeast to the wort to make your beer uh, is going to promote growth. So anything that promotes growth is also going to promote some of these uh, off flavors or und- undesirable flavors sure. that uh, you might find in your finished beer if you're not careful. So some of these flavors uh, that are growth-related uh, off flavors include uh, fusel alcohols, like Dave mentioned, uh, which are harsh, um, harsh alcohols that uh, some of them resemble like hairspray or solvent that could really give you quite the headache and hangover. Oh, so that's bad uh, next beer, day, right? That, yes, that's, that's the bad beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prison high alcohol sounds fun, right? right. No, it's not fun. No, you just described alcohol. vodka. That's, yeah. that's all okay. I heard there. <laughs> all right, so you've got you've got uh, you know you've got all this stuff going on. You've added your yeast. You're past the exponential growth phase. You're making alcohol now. Talk to me about what happens between that phase and then I can sit down and someone can pour a beer into my glass. What's that? What's that last step there or whatever? Uh, you've got to condition it. So during the stationary phase, okay. uh, the yeast are pretty much full. Uh, they've consumed all the sugars that they can. Yep. Um, they undergo a process called flocculation. So the yeast <laughs> is, is going I've to... Said it, I've said it before. It's a family podcast. But okay, so, yeah. <laughs> so the yeast are going to flocculate together, uh-uh. and then they're going to fall to the bottom Mm-mm. of the tank. Mm-hmm. Um, but before they do that, you want to encourage them to uh, remain suspended in the beer so they can clean up some of these off flavors like acetaldehyde or green apple flavor, um, diacetyl, or... Popcorn. I like that you flavor. said two very chemistry-oriented things and green apple flavor. Like there was a, there was a lot of translation so, going on there. So that the acetaldehyde is uh, the like green apple flavor. So each okay. one of these compounds. He gave us the stupid. Yeah, 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 yeah. it was yeah. nice. No, I, but I was like one of those things is not like the other. What he just said. Yeah, <laughs> periodic table, periodic table, and apple. Okay, okay so, cool. So yeah. each one of these compounds, like when found in finished beer, is seen sort of as a flaw. Um, and what they are is products of just kind of an imbalance in how we treat our yeast. You know, so in, in, at low thresholds, we don't taste these. And the yeast produce these, and, and a lot of these compounds are then recombined during fermentation or uh, sort of um, during the tail end of fermentation um, to form pleasant flavors and aromas like uh, fruity esters. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, like spicy phenols like you would get out of like a Belgian Saison sure. or something like that. Um, but when you manage the fermentation poorly, um, you get an imbalance. So the, those higher alcohols that are produced during the, the, the front edge of fermentation, those are actually important for ester formant- formation. Yeah. I almost just said fermentation. Yeah. Nope. Um, yeah. They're very different thing. You could have. That's when you use would a, not jo- have known a, right. George, a I would have George continued nodding. Like, drill. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. grill. Seven minutes ago, you just could have started yeah. making shit up. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Transitioned seamlessly. Right. Mm-hmm. 
But so they're important, but when you have those in balance, they become a problem. So uh, acetaldehyde is a compound that tastes like uh, like sour green apples or like. Uh, yeah, yeah, very strong green apple flavor. Sometimes grassy, I think, is a descriptor for. Yeah, it could be sort of grassy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's another one like uh, that, that has. Uh, if you, if you drink a lot of English beers, um, uh, you get you can get a, a sort of a buttery or like fake movie theater popcorn butter yeah. aroma, uh, and that's a that's a compound called diacetyl. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's the phone going off because people are calling the brewery yeah. because they want some fine beer. But I think now we're transitioning into like I've made beer that maybe won't poison me immediately. Right. Here's how the do thing. I make sure it's good? Right. Uh, I think that's another topic. I am also out of beer, right. and I really want to capitalize on this fear right. of breathing thing. So right. we're going to move on to another segment. Right. And we'll come right back with how you make a beer actually good. Hey, uh, we're here with our next segment. I am drinking a blush from Mother's Brewing, of course. It is delicious, tongue-happy, good times. Tongue-happy. Delicious, tongue-happy, good times. Me like. Are you having a stroke? Say something more eloquent about this beer than I am capable. No, no, no. I'm sure the brewers couldn't get beyond delicious tongue happy, Caleb. Well, right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, it's an endorsement. That's great. That's great. He was actually just reading the label copy there. Hey, no one don't don't make him feel better about what happened here. Absolutely not. No, that's not how this works. Okay. Uh, yeah, tell us about blush. So the foundation of this beer is a uh, a Belgian wit, basically, which is a style uh, dominated by the, the we were talking about yeast. Yeah. In the other segment, uh, the yeast used to produce it. Uh, and a lot of Belgian beers are like that. Um, they have very unique yeast strains um, that have more similar characteristics to wine yeast in a lot of ways. They're big, uh, big phenol producers, which are the sort of spicy, kind of like peppery, clovey compounds, uh, somewhat similar to like a German Weizen yeast. Uh-huh. Um, but then they also can be big ester uh, f- formers as well. Um, big sort of like uh, stone fruit compounds that come from them. Um, this yeast we're using, I think, uh, I, I like restraint when it comes to, uh, character we get from these beers. To me, uh, large amounts of phenols can be, uh, a little off-putting. They can get overly spicy and they can be a little, be a little headachey, sure. uh, for lack of a more technical term. Yeah. Um, I even feel the same way about one of my favorite beer styles, which is Belgian Saison. Um, getting the balance right on those beers is difficult. But uh, <clears throat> so uh, a Belgian wit is characterized. Uh, wit refers to the large amount of wheat um, that is that is in these beers. So we use a combination of uh, malted German wheat and then also flaked wheat, which uh, flaked wheat is wheat that has not been malted. It has simply been uh, heated or cooked and then pressed to uh, open up the endosperm. Or uh, and, and and gelatinize the starches there and open them up to the mashing process. Uh, that way you can get those sugars out and then you get larger proteins out of them as well. So there's a the reason we use those uh, those grains or what would be considered an adjunct grain is the 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 protein that comes along with them and what what the protein gives us is mouth feel. So we want uh, this sort of big... Tongue-happy, as it Yeah, tongue-happy. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use flaked oat and flaked wheats 
as well as well as malted wheat, and then uh, some German pilsner, and then our two row as well. Um, this is sort of a twist on a traditional Belgian wit um, that we add pomegranate juice to uh, towards the tail end of fermentation, um, and then we also add hibiscus yeah. to it. How late in the process is the hibiscus added? So we actually, uh, we played around uh, with a lot of different ways of adding the hibiscus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I very much wanted to add it on the hot side mm-hmm. uh, during the boil in the brew house to get as much extraction out of it as we could. Sure. Um, but somewhat uh, mysteriously, we just continually had problems getting the, uh, getting the character we wanted. Uh, it seemed like it all got lost um somewhere you know so i mean it was it was amazing it would be like we'd dump in a shitload of hibiscus powder uh, a shitload is a very technical term absolutely um <laughs> and and somehow the beer coming out would just be like straw colored hmm. and or, or like and we're right. just like uh i swear to god i just added a ton of this it yeah. should be bright ass pink mm-hmm. and it's just not so what we adopted and uh, a lot of brewing and a lot of recipe formulation is this is just trial and error, putting stuff together and seeing what works. Is uh, adding adding it when we add the fruit juice towards the tail end of fermentation. We basically make a hot tea uh, with the hibiscus and add it in towards the tail end of fermentation, uh, and it homogenizes nicely inside the fermentation. Yeah. And we get this excellent tartness, uh, this refreshing, quenching tartness from the hibiscus along with the pomegranate. And then uh, it just gives it this brilliant pink color sure. that not only tints the the body of the beer, um, but what's nice, I, I, what I particularly like about the hibiscus is that it also seems to affect the foam color. So if hmm. you look kind of closely on this beer, it does stack up like the head isn't purely white it's got a little pink tinge to it so so that thing that you just mentioned there dave that process of like trial and error right like well i don't know we we thought this would make sense and then it didn't work you know we've talked a little bit about the science of beer so like the nuts and bolts of like putting shit together to make it work seems like there's a lot that can go wrong um where do you find that like beer often loses its way and like what's the biggest difference for if for our listeners because i assume most of our listeners don't work at major national breweries i assume I lots mean, of lo- probably could be, lot, probably they're sneaking up on us lots of celebrities <laughs> yeah. probably is, is who we think listens and then not a lot of other people probably so mostly yeah, if, celebrities if so they're just doing oppositional research that's right probably made a mistake uh, market wise but either way um so where do you find that like beer most often separates itself into oh that's good or Oh, that was a mistake. Yeah, like the art piece. The aesthet- so yeah. at some point, it's an aesthetic decision, right? Not just a yes, all of the math or science panned out. But yeah, now right. this tastes good or doesn't good or it did what I didn't want to do. Like, mm-hmm. well, talk about that. Yeah, so I, I think that um, when you've mastered, uh, which we have not, uh, you know, we... we spoiler. <clears throat> yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> we we have in no way mastered the, the technical aspect of, you know, making beer. Uh you know, we do it professionally, and I think we do a very, very good job. Uh, but it's a process, and it's a journey, and, you know, we're, we're learning stuff all the time. For sure. So, but once you figured out how to make good beer, um, that's really 90% of the way there. Once you've got the science down and once you've got a good process down that you know can churn out good beer, 
you can basically walk up to a recipe, you can walk up to a style, and you've definitely got places where you've got you, you pull inspiration from, or at least I know this is what kind of my process looks like. Right. Um, I'll read up on it, yep. I'll research it, um, I'll figure out uh, based on beers that I've drank or beers, because that's mostly where the inspiration comes from, is I'll have a beer. Um, and I'll go, man, that's fantastic. I want to, I want to do something like that. Or yeah. I'll think about a style and I'll go to that style and I'll say, you know, what, what are, what are the, what are the standouts in this style? What, what beers do I really associate with this style? And what is it that I think those beers have that make them stand out yeah. as being particularly excellent? And then you start putting together in your head how in the hell you think the people that made those beers accomplished what they accomplished. And so you look back at your process and you see, you know, how, how do I think my process lines up with what I speculate they might have done? Yeah. Uh, oftentimes you can find, uh, especially with the homebrew community, the internet is just rife with rumors about, Oh, I heard, I heard Vinny at Russian river does the, you know, he dry hops it 20 times and you know, all this shit. Uh, so we just, you know, you just, you, you learn, you ask questions. Uh, luckily, you know, the brewing community, especially the craft brewing community, is very open and you've got colleagues and mentors that you reach out to and you say, hey, I was thinking about trying this. It seems a little crazy, right. but I think it might work. And, uh, you know, you just bounce ideas off of people sure. and, and you try new shit. So talk to me about, like, one of the clearest examples of your mind. Uh, you know, you've used this meta- this kind of, like, metaphor now that you, that gets you 90% of the way there, right? Mm-hmm. That once you get the science of the whole thing down. Talk to me about one of the clearest examples in your guys' mind where you were 90% of the way there and that last 10% just fucked you. I mean, like, it did not end up where you thought it was going to end up at all. Like, you got a clear example in your mind, and what's that like? I mean, what do you do there? It doesn't have to be professional for mothers. If you're right. Yeah, about no, I mean, like, stuff, so yeah. we, we've got trial brews all the time where I think a lot of the, a, a lot of, um, so prior to me, uh, taking over as sort of the, the head brewer here, yeah. um, I think we played things a little bit closer to the vest than we have, mm-hmm. than we, than, than I try to now. It's just not the way my brain works and yeah. it's not the way I like to try things. And we did a lot of experimenting with stuff that, um, the goal was to make sure that, you know, we made something that was sellable. Right. And we still definitely do a lot of that. Sure. Um, because we've got this tasting room. Like I said, we know how to make good beer. We have a good process down. Um, so really everything that entered the cellar that left the brew house and went into the cellar, there was just this unspoken tone that it was destined for the tasting room. It mm-hmm. had to make it to the tasting room. And so uh, for me, uh, one of the things that it is really important to be able to like shed that pressure and really, really try new stuff from time to time is getting rid of that pressure and saying, this can go down the drain. Like a, sure. an acceptable place for this to end up yeah. is the fucking sewer. <laughs> uh, and, and we have, if, if that was our task, we have succeeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. and, and that was the goal. Yeah. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so we definitely, the sewers are drunk with mother's yeah, we beer. Have, we've definitely, we've definitely, <laughs> we've definitely had beers that, uh, did not pan out. You know, we, uh, um, we use a lot of roasted barley in a lot of our dark beers, and uh, we had a beer recently where uh, 
I had used uh, black malt, specifically a uh, debittered uh, German black malt um, from Weirman, uh quite a bit as a home brewer. But this was before I really understood, um, you know, just the, the different contributions that these malts give us. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I adopted a lot of the recipes here and just coming up in sort of how Brian made beer here, uh, he seemed to be a big fan of uh, roasted barley as opposed to using uh, black malt, uh, which the difference is roasted barley is a heavily kiln raw, heavily kilned raw barley, uh, whereas a black malt is a malted barley that then gets heavily kilned. Um, and we used a little bit of debittered black malt, um, but we didn't really use much of the just raw black malt that still has the husk on it. And with that, you get some more kind of character and astringency and some of those acrid flavors that you associate with, you know, bitter dark chocolate or black coffee mm-hmm. or... Mm-hmm black malt yeah. um and so uh yeah we 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 set out to brew a beer that uh basically in place of roasted barley uh used all black malt um and we said you know what we're just gonna throw something at the wall and we're gonna try it we're mm-hmm. gonna see what works did you use a shit ton we used a decent amount. Okay. And, oh, uh, not quite a little a less than a shit. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it came out tasting like we used a decent amount of it. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and it was just sort of like, uh, what are we going to do with this? Right. Uh, and then the answer was, we're not going to do anything. Right. So we're, we're, it's it's going to go away. We're, we're going to forget about it so, until some jackasses ask about it on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and, but that's, uh, that's a big important part of the process as well. And it's tough, like, you know, it's tough rationalizing that because yeah. yeah how long did that beer sit? Like how long did you work on that beer before you came to that realization? Yeah. I mean, all in, we probably had, you know, a month or yeah. so wrapped up in that beer between like planning process of like, we're going to do this, um, communication with the person who does all of our raw material ordering. Yeah. You know, so like when a, when a beer goes down the drain, like we definitely, I mean, we, I, I answer that question Probably about eight different times. Yeah, uh, just ex- ex- explaining. Like, taps yeah, ex- it will just explaining <laughs> it to all the parties involved right. of what happened, right? Why it happened, and then also taking on the hard job of reminding people why we why we do that. Yeah, you know, for sure, because we don't send subpar beer out the door. Yeah, and we also need to occasionally cross the line to know where the line is. Yeah, that's right. You know, Brad, do you have a good yeah, example? It, and you, you you don't really know that that's going to happen until you've already sent that work to the seller uh, to to ferment in the fermenters and it's done fermenting and you also give it a chance to ferment or right. to condition. I'm sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> and then we talked about fusels earlier. Yeah. Also, and you know uh, those fusels can turn into uh, combined with an organic acid to form fruitier esters. But um, I think we had a case with. Uh, a, a Belgian uh, IPA about a year ago where um, something happened uh, with the fermentation didn't necessarily have to do with uh, uh, the malt bill, uh, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of had a, some stressed out use that that uh, had, had a poor fermentation yep. and uh, the yeast got stressed out, um, uh, increased those uh, uh, harsh growth factors that can can increase uh, some harsh off flavors like fusels, and it, we just couldn't get it to clean up. Yep. And it, 
it had to go down the drain. Shit's got to go. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that was a particularly tough one, you know, basically having to, like, cancel a release. And, oh, man. You know, that was that was one of the things that, you know, uh, I, I actually took a little bit of, like, sick pride mm-hmm. in that of just, like, saying, like, we're not... We're gonna disappoint people, right? I'm I would rather eat. I would rather disappoint people now, yeah, than uh, later before yeah. they spent their money That's on right. it, yeah. <laughs> then have them then, then have yeah. then have them spend their own money and then be disappointed for sure. Well, I imagine even beyond the economic factors, like I mean, it, when I fuck up writing or talking on this podcast, if many new listeners no longer listening, no, um, mm-hmm. the the gratification of knowing I did not do it well is pretty immediate. It's gotta suck to put that in a barrel. And then have a sunk cost of like I'm going to sit around here for a couple months, yeah, yeah. <laughs> waiting to realize I don't like it. That has to be a hard, a hard choice. Like, yeah. yeah. That said, there are some like uh, there's some real curveballs where like we'll get stuff. You know, oftentimes you'll get something out of the brew house, and you'll like you you over time kind of develop an aptitude for it tastes like this now, so mm-hmm. it's going to taste like that later. Um, and you start mm-hmm. and then it surprises you. You start mm-hmm. to be able to put that together for sure. Um, and I'm already like I'm already a person whose anxiety boils a little close to the surface. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of times where, uh, you know, we'll get a beer exiting the brew house, and I'm just like, well, that's a total fucking waste of time. <laughs> like that was just uh, everybody yeah. just go ahead and go home. Cool guys. Like sometimes <laughs> it turns out awesome. Yeah, too. and then and then we get it where uh, you know towards the as the process goes on and you know we we drink it and we're like oh holy shit apparently i don't know apparently i knew even less than i thought i did sure. and then and this is turning out great and right. we we're, we're in love with where this is at and you learn a lot i mean just like in anything yeah anything creative you learn so much more from your mistakes right than you do from your successes well and it probably gives you like some faith in that magic gap in between what you feel like you have control over and what you end up with yeah there is really i mean there's like an old uh you know this this old saying that uh you know brewers don't really make beer uh you know brewers make wort mm-hmm. and yeast make beer mm-hmm. you know so there is this like we are it's we're trying to put together these these raw materials and these flavors in the brew house that through this biotransformative reaction, we think will have a desirable outcome. Yeah. But then the whole secondary portion of that, and not even arguably, I, I would say inarguably, the most important aspect of all of this is managing yeast health and managing yeast performance. Right. So you're this just sort of like yeast wrangler and caregiver professional yeast wrangler yeah, okay right. you guys did a great job with the explanation but like you're using that word right, right too many times right. in a sentence i'm just wrangler, oh, right. no, no. Sorry. i don't need any of that it's what do just, you do uh professional yeast oh, wrangler that's really getting after me here's right. my hat <laughs> all right so uh basic thesis statement 90 percent. if you want to improve get better at the science of it that's the the surefire way right yeah but then don't be afraid to fail and uh don't be afraid to say that um after you experiment, it didn't work and keep going. Right. So some persi- not that persistence, patience. Level. Yeah. And you can definitely, but I mean, with that said, like be willing to be flexible and be willing to like find, find the good in what you've made and look at it, uh, you know, very objectively and say, you know, maybe this isn't exactly what I set out to make. Yeah. Um, but there is still good in it because my process is good and because I, I know what I'm doing. 
to a certain extent, just because I didn't nail this recipe this one time. You know, we have a great example of that on in our tasting room right now where we had a, uh, a trial brew for a barley wine we've got coming out that uh, we've made some slight tweaks to. It's, been, it's a recipe we haven't brewed in a couple of years, and we definitely were putting the screws to ourselves to really nail it on this release. And so we got a small-scale trial brew of it out, and uh, it's good. It's really tasty, um, but it's not exactly like where we wanted it to right. be. Right. And so I had a couple brewers who kind of picked up the torch on it and were like, hey, we think if we added some coffee to this, it would be really tasty. And uh, for me, I'm still writing this like, we failed. We didn't hit it exactly where yeah, we absolutely. wanted to. Um, but they brought new energy to it and were like, hey, we want to do this with it. And what we ended up with is fantastic. Uh, it's this nice, fruity... Uh, coffee-forward barley wine, the marriage of the fruitiness from the coffee and the fruity esters from the yeast along with the sweetness from the malt bill, the kind of like toffee flavor, uh, works really, really nicely together. And it was something that I was ready to like close the book on. Yeah. And they stepped in and made something really, really fantastic out thing. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, do, I do want to admit that I thought that was originally a terrible idea. <laughs> I, I, did not like, I did not like the fact of putting coffee in a barley wine, but, right. man, that... All right. It worked. So let it incredible. surprise you, too. Right. Yeah. That's right. right. That's right. It surprisingly flavors that... Well, I want to go drink that now. Yeah, is it? So we should leave yeah. this segment. Yeah. But we, we want to thank you guys yeah, for like coming you. on to talk about, you know, Caleb said it best at the beginning of the last segment. We, we talk about beer, we rate beer, we drink beer, we review beer. But man, we are fucking dense in terms of like how beer actually happens. Yeah, I have no idea what's right. Happening. So this was like super cool, guys. Thanks for so much for sitting with us. Yep. Uh, we hope it was informative to the other people who might listen to this. Dave, you were going to say something? I was just going to say thanks for having us. Oh, fucking yeah. hey. Hell yeah, man. Thanks, guys. All the time. <laughs> this was super cool. We really appreciate it. It's always better to have far more educated people than us talking about the things that we like. Yeah. So this was great. All right. We're going to get more beer, and we're on to the next thing. All right. We're on to the next segment. So this is Com Corner. Uh, this is where we discuss kind of the convention of language and what it does for us. And so we couldn't think of a better opportunity to talk about what it means to name a beer and how one goes through that process. And so, Kyle, if mm. you would kindly take us through naming this asceticism by Mother's Brewing Company. The first thing you have to realize about naming a beer as a production facility, first thing you have to recognize is this beer going to be trademarked? Is it going to have labels? Is it going to have six-pack carriers? Is it going to have case boxes? Is it going to head out into the larger market? If so, well, then there's a whole world of legal wrangling that goes on around this. And then there's the easy way out. Is this just going to be served in our tasting room where we don't have to worry about those considerations? Sure. Now, does the name make you laugh? That's the important thing. That's the key right there. So sometimes the name makes you think. Let's take asceticism. <laughs> <laughs> Self-denying uh -huh. myself beer as I drink one. <laughs> we can call this a Belgian strong ale. We can call this a Trappist-style inspired ale. Basically, when you look at the Belgian brewing tradition, you have 
two main themes. You have the kind of rural farmhouse or Saison style, and then you have the beers that are coming out of the monastic orders that were established in Belgium. Uh, in particular, Trappist monastics, uh, which come out of the Benedictine order, were big brewers in the Belgian tradition. Um, so... They were ascetics, which asceticism, of course, is the spiritual practice of eschewing worldly pleasure for spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. So Cheers. In, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Spartan <laughs> stone <laughs> cells. It's uh, what my wife did when she married me. Yeah. yeah exactly. So I, I understand the practice deeply. Coarse, yes. coarse hassocks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fasting on the regular basis, and at the same time, lay, let's uh, brew this strong 12% beer. <laughs> I mean, if we can't eat, we might as well drink. <laughs> so this is a beer inspired by that style, a strong Belgian ale uh, approaching a quad. It is 13%. Tala. Uh, yeah, we feel like there's something significant that can be contemplated in the mm-hmm. fact that uh, while we're eschewing worldly pleasure, we're also enjoying this 13% beer. So, asceticism. Jesus. Okay, I'm so... Two. So, Dave, <laughs> you, you've probably been involved in the process since you've been here really since the get-go of naming a bunch of beers. Talk a little bit about what that process looks like. I, just, I want to pull back for one minute. Let's do that, too. And uh, just place yourself as this person who's uh, a monk in one of these monasteries, and you've, let's say, given up food for a day, but you still have to make beer. And uh, you're going to enjoy one of these 13% beers, <laughs> and it's just going to wreck you. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I haven't I haven't uh, eaten this evening. I ate a hearty lunch <laughs> Of some uh, some tacos and some street corn. Yes. And I've had about two ounces of this, and I can already feel the top of my head tingling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually just just texted my wife, and I was like, bring home all the tacos. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just bring me all tacos the tacos. Tacos and Tylenol, please, ma'am. I'm <laughs> sorry you've denied worldly pleasure, <laughs> but I need these things. They their way through Vespers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, so naming beers, actually, I mean, I'll just be completely honest. Naming, getting names for beers, especially beers that we are looking to put into a package and send out the door, is the most, sometimes it's so completely effortless and easy um, and then you find out that that name is trademarked. Yeah. And then it's the most god awful beat your head against the wall process yes. imaginable. I, I remember. Thing, go ahead, Kyle. Yeah. No, the first thing you do is you all sit around and you start throwing out names. So just classic brainstorming session. And then once everybody gets super excited, you go ahead and put it into Google and then find out that there's four other breweries that already have a beer <laughs> named this. I, I remember. Who so would we have thought Sculpin's taken. Fuck, guys. Right. right. We, when, uh, so I was, I was kind of working with you guys when, uh, bl- when we were going to launch Blush for the first time. And I remember being involved in the Blush naming conversation and there was a group email going around. And it struck me that we should call it Pinky in the Grain. And I told my wife, emailed it, <laughs> spiked my phone as if I'd won beer naming, only to find out like two or three other breweries had already named a beer Pinky yeah. in the Grain. And yeah. that was, it, it, in five minutes, I gave up beer naming for the rest of my life. Yeah, there was a really funny article actually like three years ago in the Times that was basically just like, all beer names are just, it, like we're just going to spiral into this just deeper and deeper, intentionally more esoteric hell. 
Right. Where, like asceticism. Yeah, where, 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 right. where most of our customers can't even pronounce that word. Right. Yeah. right. My beer name's and in binary. Their fault. <laughs> yeah. 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 Ooh. I'll have the zero one actually, zero zero one. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an extremely clever name. Like, it's great. It yeah. fits what the beer is mm-hmm. fantastically. And, 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 and the brewer who came up with it and brewed this beer um, had a very clear vision for what he wanted. And he had the name right there along with it. Right. And uh, it was one of the. The instances where the beer made it all the way through, and we actually are able, if if we choose to, to use this name. And but that's it's rare that that happens, especially sure. if it's important for us to want to hold trademark right. on that name and defend that trademark. Well, and I have a radical proposition, which not been well received at the brewery, but I think we should start naming all our beers in Esperanto and not have to worry about this in the future because there's only like 68 people that speak it. So, okay, so you go through all the, you, you go through the, the outside of satisfying the legal stuff, right? Like, can we literally call it this? Right. Uh, is there a process that you go through? Are you looking for, I want to name it regard, you know, I want to look for the character of the beer. I want to capture the essence of the beer. I want to capture the flavor of the beer or the style of the beer. Is there a, a place where you start or is it just, I don't know, that this thing randomly attached to this thing and now I think this is Yeah, the I'm, I'm interested in priority because you want something jovial. I think asceticism has the joke in there. It's great. But you also want something like reminiscent of the brew's origin, which again, it fits on both fronts, and you're also not being sued for stealing a beer name. Triple um, whammy. So, but like, if you had to choose between those two, I mean, you're always going to choose not be sued, but if you had to choose between, it represents the beer's character and it's sort of snappy and marketable. Well, again, Or does it have to be in the middle of that Venn diagram before you even consider it? It, it has to be in the middle. Yeah. Again, we're a production facility, which means that we are reaching out to a larger market than just our tasting room, even right. though we love our tasting room folks. Sure. Uh, and, you know, you have to be conscious in this day and age of what the identity of your brewery is. We're Mother's Brewing Company, so Mother's Brewing Company is not going to put out a beer called Fuck You IPA. <laughs> We're simply not going to do that because that's not who we are mm-hmm. as a brewery. Mm-hmm. I mean, we th- we think that's funny. Right. We, just, right. we can't. Right. Can't do that. Legally, packaging <laughs> would not be okay. And we wouldn't want to do that. I mean, oh, we yeah. Think okay. It, sure. That it, too. I mean, we think it's funny right here in this conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And someone says, oh, we should just name it Fuck You IPA. And we all right. get a really good laugh about yeah. that. But then we go. But obviously we can't. There's no yeah. bad ideas yeah. in brainstorming. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the first thing to come off the table when we're done brainstorming. Yeah, yeah like, oh no, don't say that. <laughs> um, what? So, like, talk about talk about the times. Um, how do you resolve? So, you've come up with a couple of different names. Now you've got two sitting at the table, right? That you've got camps pitted against one another. This name or that name. What's the default there? Like, how do we figure out? Choose this one over that one. Is there a condition? Is it? Do we choose style? Do we choose flavor? Do we choose look? What's the thing we go with there to make that work? I actually, I don't know that we've landed quite. We haven't really landed in that paradigm. Yeah, I don't think we have. I don't think we have like a standardized protocol for dealing with these situations. A lot of time, we're still playing it by our gut. Right. Um, You know, let's take a beer like a loop de loop. Uh That's a hella style lager. Loop de loop. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'd love to drink that beer. Uh, It sounds great. Like, who doesn't want to take a loop-de-loop? Right. I don't know. Do people want to say that? Do they feel silly ordering this beer? We can't tell before we go all in. So a lot of times we're following our gut as a brewery, 
And then we're going, well, I hope everybody else is on board with this. This is the kind of decisions that you have to deal with on a regular basis when you're in a uh, passion-fueled industry sure. that still has to answer to the realities of the marketplace. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Let me, yeah, speaking of the marketplace, let me ask this question. So the craft beer drinker is promiscuous. There are a million different types of a million different styles that I could pick up off the shelf at any point. So in your guys' minds as experts, literal professionals on this thing, mm-hmm. how important do you think a name really is if I'm just wandering the shelves trying to find something to pull? I would argue that the visual presentation of the package is probably more important than the name. I would think that that is, that is you know, from a pure, like, shelf grab standpoint, that's the thing that, that jumps out at people sure. first. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, as far as, like, an on-premise thing, um, on premise, talking about like bars, yeah, pe- pe- where people can tap lines, stuff like that. Um, coming up with something that people feel all right ordering because there's a verbal communication there. You know, oh, you, don't, for sure. you don't walk up to the counter at High V. You don't. Have, I'll have a yeast. Yeah, yeah you don't. <laughs> I will, I'll have. I will have this package of fuck you IPA, yeah, sir. Yeah, you don't. You don't have yeah. to say the name of right. the beer as uh-huh. you set it up, but right. there is there's a verbal interaction uh, at the bar, right? And so that's to be thought about there. But I think really, um, the the visual presentation is probably uh, the most important thing. And as someone who you know understands that the liquid is inside of the bottle and. That's the most important thing. Right. I even catch myself being slave to like yeah. shit that's in a cool package that I like buying. For so, sure. Oh, I've uh, bought, I've spent untold <laughs> amount of money on packages that look super rad right. and got them home right. and was just like, eh, I don't yeah. know, I'm not going to buy it again. Right. But I picked right. it up that first right. time. So did Warner Brothers Studio, water. Zack Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you just heard some high fives. That was me high fiving myself. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's very interesting though is that, uh, while, uh, the craft beer market today is in fact promiscuous, promiscuous they are in fact well informed so there's this once again this balance that has to be struck most people picking something up off the shelves that they've never tried before might be attracted to the packaging they might be attracted by the name initially but they also are probably somewhat knowledgeable about the style sure. and they have some you can expect someone to get the joke about yeah right. so Take the beer we're drinking right now, asceticism. Uh, it's not packaged. It's not distributed. Right. Uh, it's served right here in our tasting room. But if it was out on the shelves, there would be a certain number of people, probably most people, who would go, oh, a Belgian quad. I love Belgian quads. For sure. I want to try asceticism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, more likely, I want to try aceta. Set it. Uh-huh. I said it. I'll have I almost one. said it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That one, tongue happy. And then you're there. Tongue happy, mouthfeel. Yeah. Absolutely. We go. Yeasty. That said, mm-hmm. I mean, there is a, as someone who has definitely, you know, learned a new word from an interaction or, you know, tried to pick my way through a book that was over my head with a fucking dictionary. Yeah. You know, like, there is there is some hope that maybe uh, with a beer like that, we, we cause somebody to punch Asketus sizem <laughs> in, into their into that's right their, into get their, it into that vocabulary in, yeah mm-hmm. into into their into their Google machine yeah and I think find the, something from it so. the point is is one of the core values of this brewery is that we can improve people on a very core level 
just by engaging with the mother's brand, they will come out better people. Right. Right. And you have learned something for having participated We're going in to the make them that's better right. people. <laughs> right. Via this beer. Right. And they may not remember it on the other end, but yeah. damn it, for a few hours they were much better for yeah, having known it's this. It's like that moment at like ten o'clock at or uh, let's be honest, like midnight. <laughs> right. Where yeah. you're yeah. where you're where you're uh, None of us are that old yet, where Dave. Where you, yeah, yeah, where you're watching a Nova mm, on yeah, fractal okay, geometry and you're you know, maybe not in any shape to oh, be Oh, documentary drug. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite yeah, drug. Yeah, 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 yeah. Documentary right. drug. And, and, yeah. then you, and then you come to work the next day and you try to talk to Kyle about fractal geometry because you watched a Nova on it and you realize that you don't actually know what the fuck you're talking about. I just I just uh, learned something about me in relation to the rest of you, which is I've never been documentary drunk. What? Oh, really? No. Oh, no. So the drunk I lived. You know what happens to me? So there there is a direct relationship between amount I've consumed and amount of animation in a thing that I want to watch. And so like while sober, I'm in for fucking anything. Whilst drunk, I want to watch Young Justice or Teen Titans go and everybody else can Hey man, I get, I get there, but sometimes I get drunk and I need to hear Werner Herzog talk about anything. No. And that's no. just the place that I live in. I don't need help feeling good <laughs> to me as we flew up the ice floes. This is the perfect metaphor for the state of Timothy's soul. Right? And yeah, and you cheers the TV for that. and yeah. you finish yeah. the bottle. Jesus, yeah. you people. You've never had that? No. no. Well, let me, let me ask this question. Do you, so... Does anyone actually watch Ken Burns' documentary sober? Yes. That's a thing? That's a thing for me. No, I don't watch many Ken Burns documentaries. I've started some sober. I've never finished one. Well, Well, they are very long. So there's also probably probably like some correlation here between like I don't watch a lot of documentaries, period, the end, uh, because I generally find them dull. Uh, and to be fair, Weird. to be fair, <laughs> too much facts, too right. much knowledge, too many informations. To be fair, they More put explosions. themselves in a dull category, so I feel like I'm not writing them off unfairly. I feel like we've swayed from the talk of naming a beer, but uh, I don't know. But, but <laughs> naming naming a film, if you called can it an talk action about, adventure, I'd be like, I had watched that. Uh, hey, yeah, I, I propose the next naming documentaries. Okay, <laughs> I, I propose the next beer is called Documentary Drunk. Right. Anyway, um, this has been a great segment. Thank you for talking. Absolutely, about it. this is super uh, but cool. I am empty of asceticism so in the spirit of self-denial I need Uh another beer on a new one hey we're here with Kyle again Uh, we are drinking brevity Mm. and it is tasty like all mother's beers but uh, could you tell us a little bit more about it, Kyle? Well, most certainly. Brevity is a Belgian wit style. Mm. Uh, no tricks. This That's is delicious. classic to the style. Of course, uh, I may or may not be boring you or your listeners with this fact, but wit styles out of Belgium are wheat-based styles. Uh, so this is associated particularly with the kind of rural or farmhouse style of Belgian brewing, which is to say that farmers would have had a lot of wheat on hand, and they would have thrown this into the grain bill. It is light. It is bright. It is a spring and summer drinking beer. It was typically and classically, in our case, also flavored with orange peel and a little bit of coriander spice in the hot side of the brewing yeah, process. Yeah, you can taste the coriander. Yeah. It's really nice. It comes through, but it's not overpowering. Not. Yeah, so that's the trick. Kyle was going to ask about that. So typically I find that I, I don't drink a lot of Belgian wits because I don't love the coriander on the back, but this feels lighter in nature. Was there 
have I has my palette just evolved, or was there an intentional uh, kind of choice to leave? I feel like some of these are more coriander heavy. Is was there a choice to to not make that happen here? I, I would think absolutely. In this case, there is. Uh, once again, coming out of like this sort of rural tradition of brewing, yeah, there is a wide variation among classic styles. Um, historically. What happened with these beers is impossible to say because most of the people who were brewing these left no records. Huh. What we do have is now kind of the history of what established breweries did with this style, particularly in our case, in this beer, absolutely the spice characteristic should be very well integrated. It should be subtle. Yeah. Uh, it is not a hop forward beer, though there is a subtle hop bitterness here, but this is clean. It's easy drinking. It's complex if you want to go there. Right. But if you don't, then you can just, uh, pound it. Yeah, I think that's a great way of describing it. There's, there's a little bit of sweetness on the very front. I'm guessing that comes from kind of the citrus of the orange peel, orange peel, and then it gets into some of the zest and the coriander. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice drinker and, and clean and refreshing are good ways to describe it. Club, what are we talking about in this, our fifth beer? So to explain where this segment came from, and this is getting lit. Uh, I must first getting mention lit that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting literature. Um, Kyle and I first met in a creative writing workshop, and he was the person amongst maybe three or four people that I listened to in it because he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> so I wanted to sort of cater it to opinions. him mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. apparently cater it only to him because you've never been documentary drunk, you monster. I don't, I'm not um, going to apologize for that, <clears throat> but fascists. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm, y'all bring that mm-hmm. back. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, so try it at least once. Right. <laughs> Fascism, like not right. Not not fascism. Oh, okay, he's great. talking about reading drugs. Yeah, got it's it. Like um, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, in this getting lit, I was thinking of drink with author pairings. So mm. I do like to occasionally have a few and read a bit. Uh, and I feel like uh, this is an interesting uh, sort of topic for getting lit. Who are you reading, and what are you drinking while you read it? Yeah, what a tricky topic. You're right. So, like, I don't drink and then want to do more intellectual things. And f- I mean, what, you've made a mistake. Hence the conceit of you're a bright of, young man. You much should of do this, this podcast, which, which is, is why your fridge is full of Milwaukee's ice. Okay, first off, first <laughs> off, it's bush light for me. Okay, we've talked about this. All right. Uh, no, the struggle for me is like, I recognize that my mental faculties go downhill, which is, I think, part of the joke here. That like, at some point we talk about deeply philosophical things while we're drunk. And I own that. But the we're idea- We're not writing a paper about it no, afterwards. No, that's, that's the Necessarily. Trick. So, except for those dozen or so times I did. So the, the idea for me <laughs> that I would, I would actively shed brain cells and then go try to engage difficult things is fascinating. I can only think of two instances in which this is true. So this is the only list I have, and then I'll let you, the far more educated than I, talk through this topic. Um, I had a pretty significant relationship with Pale Ales and Kurt Vonnegut, uh, and I don't know if it was a timing thing. I was drinking a lot of Pale Ales. I'd just kind of gotten over the Boulevard Wheat Hump and wanted to drink something that felt more crafty than a wheat beer. So I found some pale ales. It was around the same time I'd read uh, Slaughterhouse-Five for the first time. And so then decided to So you're to in just, high school? Well, no. <laughs> here's, the tr- here's the crazy thing. Despite the fact that Vonnegut is, like, my favorite author of all time, I don't touch Vonnegut until I'm a, Vonnegut until I'm a sophomore in college. What? Yeah. And so, so I'm, like, I'm down a path here, right? And then after that, I read all the Vonnegut I can get my hands on for, like, two years. So... 
Pale ales and Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, Both taste thoroughly American yeah. to the eyes and the yeah. tongue. Look, yeah. don't get me wrong. It was a good pairing. That's a great pairing. Right. <laughs> Bluebeard, for example, which I still think, Bluebeard and Timequake, which I, too, I think are the two most deeply moving of the Vonnegut texts. Also the name of two beers. Oh, right, right. I don't know if that's true. I, mean, I, I assume it is. Pinky and the Grain was taken. Bluebeard and Timequake <laughs> have to be, is how I feel. Uh, uh, both of those beers I read while consuming some really, like, what I thought at the time were very fine, enjoyable ales. Um, and I, once I learned that Kenneth Burke had an affection for what he called burkas, which were like six parts vodka, one part uh, bourbon. <laughs> Uh, I, Wait, what? Yeah, so <laughs> I did not know this about okay, Kenneth Burke. So uh, there's this great story from I that was called a Vespa. <laughs> uh, that was called a Tuesday. Um, so there's this great story. Of course, I was fortunate enough to go to the University of Kansas for grad school. One of the professors there hosted Burke for a week in the 70s uh, as a guest lecturer, and Burke showed up to uh, an event in his honor the first night and asked one of the grad students to make him a burka, to which the grad student was like, man, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And Burke explains it's like six parts vodka and one part bourbon. He's literally drinking whiskey vodka, Ross. And and so, It's like the room. Yes. <laughs> and, and, a high doggy. <laughs> and so uh, the, the story is, and, you know, we may even want to call it a myth at this point because the ways in which Burke... It's had, apocryphal. Burke, yes, it is. Um, he has six or seven of these while talking to grad students one night, and it's totally fine because this is what he lives on. There's also this great myth that, like, when Burke dies, they clean out his farmhouse shed, and all they find are empty bottles of whiskey and old typewriters because he would never use a typewriter for the same project twice. Anyways, I learned this. Couldn't drink vodka because reasons uh, and would drink bourbon while I was consuming Burke for the first time. And I do feel like, symbiotic or not, it had a way of helping me understand the text. Um, but that's also what drunk does. So, you know. <laughs> so, wait, you, you don't like killing brain cells and engaging in intellectual activity. Except in these two So, instances. you choose bourbon yeah. and Kenneth Burke. That's right. Yeah. It feels like jumping the hard level difficulty. Yeah, so. Yeah, well, I, yeah. That's why I shot heroin the whole time <laughs> that I was trying to read Finnegan's Way. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I'm saying is, like, I, I, I have these two moments in my life that I can point to where it's worked. And they are seminal moments for me, to be sure. We're talking about my two favorite authors of all time. Then I have a large swath of data, which suggests that I should not consume anything which would fuck up the mind and try to learn, because it hasn't worked. So that's why I'm saying, like, that's it. That's my list. I'm done here. But for the rest of you, I assume that's not true. <laughs> well, the first thing I'm going to say is stop trying to learn and just let yourself learn. Okay. Buddha. And I'm I think, <laughs> I think Vonnegut himself would probably endorse that. And if you haven't gleaned that from his writings, I suggest maybe you read Perhaps I was not his whole sober enough. <laughs> I, I literally cannot process words at a certain point. Like, I struggle to remember things. Most of the people who write these novels can't process them while they're writing. Okay. <laughs> Listen, this is not a segment about my guilt or ineptitude. This is a segment about beer and author pairings. So what do you two judgy assholes listen to or read and drink while you're learning? Go. Mm. Caleb, I go first? Yeah. List an author. I'll pair a beer. <sighs> okay. L oh, I do author, you do beer? That's a nice or little twist. Or the other way. Okay. I don't care. Um, How you like it, it's your podcast. This is... Well, we talked about Joyce. We can't do heroin, though, because we're a family podcast. So strictly with drinking. Uh, so what do you... You read Joyce, what do you pair it with? Okay. I don't know. So, Joyce... This is the person who establishes this idea of, like, 
wordplay, multiple meanings. The quintessential uh, modernist. Yes, yes. right? Mm-hmm. This is this is the idea of the text that is meant to challenge you. You're not reading this for your enjoyment. You're reading this because you're a masochist <laughs> and you want to punish yourself. <laughs> yep. So you need to slow down. <laughs> you need to turn inward. Joyce Faulkner uh David Foster Wallace these are authors I think you want big high alcohol beers <laughs> where you need to slow down because in the same time that it takes you to really appreciate 6 ounces of a 12% barrel aged imperial stout you're only going to make it through half a paragraph <laughs> that's and what you need i'm to saying be able to slow yourself down and Give yourself over to that experience. <laughs> All right, so Kyle, if you're buying beers for our listeners to consume while reading Faulkner, Joyce, Wallace, give me some beers that they could go find tomorrow. Special live event coming soon. That's right. That's <laughs> we'll right. Pass out books. Right. It will be morbid. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, give me some beers that people could go pull off the shelf and say, I'm going to drink this while I read this. Well, so, okay. Hang on. You're going to edit all this out. I'm going to collect No, we, we're fucking, we're doing, no, this, this, is, is, this is some Bill O'Reilly live, live. shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, it's Bill O'Reilly live? Yeah. No, yeah. Okay. Well, then get your hands off my crotch, Spencer. <laughs> Never. Um, <laughs> See, I would go with a different direction on Joyce. I'd go like a. What? I'd go something lighter because I want to, I want to like get myself in his headspace and I realize I am not the intellectual equal of Joyce. And so I want to like punch lightweight for that. And I'm also thinking of Joyce's like image. Like the man of Joyce or like God disinterestedly paring his nails. I want to go like a Cezanne or something light for Ooh, Joyce. Maybe like a farmhouse? Yeah, yeah. Something like uh, sort of light. I know it's not historically authentic. I, I know it's apocryphal, but like at the same time, like it's about my appreciation of the literature and the beer. It's not about what Joyce would want me to drink. Um, well, so we don't want to know what Joyce wants us to drink because <laughs> if you've ever read yeah. his letters, to his wife and lover, Nora, where he talks about his little fart bird and all that stuff. You don't want to know what this guy wants to drink. <laughs> no, he's fucking creepy. Don't. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But as somebody who's trying to interpret this text, it's been left for us, frankly, like, you know, it just came off of the mount. Somebody came down. Mm-hmm. Probably a critic writing for a East Coast publication circa 1932, and they were just like, well, here's the uh, sacred text of the <laughs> yeah. modernist movement. Right. And you go, well, I think I'm reasonably intelligent. I have to read this fucking book, apparently. Then, yeah, no, you do. You do. I, I do like that mindset. Do like, I have bigger beer. You want to stop. You I wanna should st- challenge my palate the same way I challenge my mind. So here's, like, here's the, I'm not in this because it's easy. I, no. Either way. I think, when I think like Imperial Stout, right? Like, I think like th- this is going to be an uphill climb between me and my ability to do things. I think the, the Steinbeck, the Hemingways, mm-hmm. the, the visceral challenge to the self and what it means to be happy. And maybe that's just because I've been hung over enough on MILF and Abraxas and some mm-hmm. these heavy beers, which have really forced me to say, what the fuck am I doing right now? 
But but you seem to be thinking that 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 should not be the aesthetic quality of a stout as translated to literature. Well, now I guess this is actually where things get even more complicated, uh, because I guess you can look for uh, a beer. If you have a preconceived notion of what you're expecting out of said text you're engaging, sure. maybe you have a beer that you think is going to put you into that place. Maybe for certain texts, you just need a beer that you think is going to match on a like surface level the right. text. So in 2016, I got obsessed with James Elroy, and I read everything that James Elroy ever wrote. Uh, L.A. Confidential is, of course, yep. the people most know that. Is That's a good drinking author. I don't know what right. I pick, but I want to drink while Cams. reading. Yeah. Like so, no, but it's a, it should be crisp. It should be clean. It should be one drink after the other because particularly when he gets into his later stylistic period, it is staccato, stream of consciousness, Clipped. mostly like sentence fragments. Mm-hmm. So, no, you don't want an imperial stout when you're reading Bloods of River by James Elroy. You want something that's dry and crisp and low alcohol. And can I get another please? And quit fucking wasting my time. Can I get another please? Right, right, sure. So, there are some books where you're going in going, what's going to help me read this? And then there are some books where you're picking a beer and you're going to go, what's going to help me understand this? Yeah. So I had this great advisor in grad school, Don Parson, who I think I've talked about before. And Parson always said when he would send papers off to advisors or for review, he would also send a note letting people know what to drink while they were reading it. Mm-hmm. And it would depend on the depth of, move. depth of the paper and the quality of the advisor. <laughs> and so, for example, he would say, he would say, you know, with this paper, I would highly suggest an old red. Or with this paper, <laughs> I might suggest a nice Malbec. <laughs> With this paper, I would think that a nice bourbon on ice, you know, one of those things. And so it was this, it was this sense, and I think this is what you're describing, Kyle, that some things are actually unlocked by this kind of perfect character that is the alcohol, which acts as a lubricant for processing the information. So to wrap this segment up, here's what I want to do. If you had to pick a perfect beer, so you were going to go home, dream day, you got to do whatever you wanted, perfect beer pairing, perfect text pairing. What would the thing be? What are you drinking? What are you reading? You only get to make one choice of each. And we're going to go around the table? That's right. And starting with you. No, we're not going to start with me. I feel like we should start with you as the guest of the podcast. I haven't actually gone yet. Oh, yeah, shit. I was like, let's hear you from monster. Caleb. Now, you- see, dem- democracy has won the day. Well, I have actually done this before. Okay. Bob so, Rule. Um, I wrote a degree paper about Bukowski. Mm-hmm. It's not because I think Bukowski's the best ever mm-hmm. by any means. Uh, it is because, like, I feel like every reading of Bukowski I ever got was interesting, but also terribly misogynistic. And I wanted to be like, all right, I'm the guy who's read Bukowski, but isn't, like, part of the cult. Like, I want to be a guy who's read Henry Miller, and I get Henry Miller, and I'm also not that into Henry Miller. Like, I want to be, like, not drinking the Kool-Aid. Sure. So I read... Yeah, you've picked two authors who are known for being transgressive, but when you really get down to parsing their fucking, like, it's pretty lackadaisical. Yeah, like, pretty pedestrian. Yeah, no, this very is much pretending. Good. There's yeah. very much a persona in the way. You like to bet on horses? You drink a lot? <laughs> right. Me too. Right. I yeah. should write a book. So, um, I tried that, and I thought, like, ooh, I'll be fan... And I was in grad school, so there was probably some... 
fucking performative gender identity right. and, and picking this. I'm not going to like not own that. Yeah. I do. But I tried it and I'm like trying to drink old fashions. I'm trying to like, as I'm just sl- slowing through like late Bukowski shit yeah. he didn't even publish, which is like bananas for Bukowski. Cause he sure. published fucking everything. Um, like, and I'm just slowing through this shit. I need something to get me through it. And, I, I, I do find there's some act of like, what gets me to understand this rather yeah. than what I need to understand? Cause I'm like trying old fashions. I'm trying car bar. I'm trying like some other like mahogany bar shit. And I realized I just need to drink cheap wine. <laughs> just like mad dog fighting drunk wine, pissed off at everything. My head hurts. It's fruity. Wow. And it's like two dollars, and I I I got it in a way I never got it before. You have wheel turn flipped me, sir. I did not and, see this and, coming. And um, it's not that I, got, I I drank something that tasted like Kool Aid, but it's not that like I was into Bukowski and thinks he was the end all and be all. But I kind of got it. Like I kind of got. Let's work twelve hours in a post office. Mm-hmm. Let's go home. Let's drink two bottles of Mad Dog for sure. And let's type poetry until 6 a.m. And then let's get our asses up and go back to the post office. I kind of got the aesthetic a little bit. And so that, that was the best case scenario for me. Other than I just like want to pass some time while drinking and enjoying a good book. Uh, that's the only case in which it's really enhanced my understanding of the author. My goodness. Yeah. And I guess what you're actually getting down to here is that like, uh, you've chosen, uh, beat era writer, Mm -hmm. uh, which the idea of any sort of like class based or aesthetic appreciation of the like experience that you're doing when you take a sip out of the glass is irrelevant. And in fact, is a structure that's imposed upon you that the text itself is trying to liberate you from. Mm-hmm. So Bukowski. You don't want to drink craft beer with Bukowski no. because the point of Bukowski is you shouldn't be enjoying craft beer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Or most Spence, what's yeah. up? So um, uh, I, I thought about doing something a little more playful, and then Caleb totally pulled the rug out from under me with this Wait, with this two dollar wine. Live your truth, man. So I have two thoughts. Uh, the most fun thing I've read in recent memory was Ernest Klein's Ready Player One, and I've been over this at length that I thought the writing was mm, but the fun was maximal. Oh, so, yeah. Talk about a book you do not need to be sober to read that's and right. understand. In fact, maybe it you is shouldn't be. Right. Candy. So yeah. Ready Player One and Perennials von Pomplemousse. I think it is, the, it is the quality of quality in terms of sours oh. and the fun and fun of terms of books. But if you're looking Reads for something... Reads like candy, tastes like candy. That's right. Yeah. If you're looking for something no, that. a little more highbrow, and that's fine if you are, I would say Kenneth Burke's Permanence and Change uh, with uh, not Blanton's, which is the thing I would normally recommend, but Kenneth Burke's Permanence and Change rather with Bullet Rye. Mm. Would be just a little more like, bite on the back end. That's right. Something it, it is something a, to wake you up. That's right. Like, that was a complex fucking sentence a, that I should reread. A biting approach to true <laughs> traditional psychological paradigms and how they shape kind of our Western thought with this biting approach to bourbon. This like incredibly aggressive, hard off the tongue um, rye that I think Bullet does really, really well, and frankly, uh, cheaper than most places do it, which I think is kind of Burke's aesthetic. I mean, the man was afraid of McDonald's and lived off a farm in fucking New Jersey. So I think there's something very um, culturally and aesthetically pleasing about the, the, the two things going together. Kyle, you've been given your time, sir. You must pay the piper. <laughs> 
first and foremost, what we expect out of literature in the modern era uh, is basically defined by what some of the strongest novelists did in the 19th century. Uh, the novel, of course, has always been connected to this idea of, like, big moral ideas and things like this, and this all can be traced back historically down to the big epics of the past, Gilgamesh, etc., etc., uh, up through the Russians, and I'm just like, yo, Dostoevsky, forever, and what up? But, in a very big idea, I say, okay, do this. Take a big novel that's got a lot of ideas. It's big. It's juicy. It's not American in this case. It's still written by a man. That's most of the novels that we're talking about. Uh, History's not your fault. I know. Move on. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, beloved by Toni Morrison would be next on this list. Mm-hmm. After this, One Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, that's a good drinking book. Is damn fuck you for thinking that before me. Yeah, damn satisfying on all levels, like any good drink that you put in your mouth. Which is to say that, on a surface level, formally speaking, it's impeccable. It has layers beyond that in which that it suggests ideas that both occur in your daily life and then it has a fundamental substrate that is the way you approach your everyday life. Uh, the novel is built from the ground up from the day you were born to the day you die uh, and it expresses this in an aesthetic capacity that can't be... So, personally, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say, honestly, uh, yes, and I'm being paid to say this. Honestly, right now, Doozy <laughs> from Mother's Brewing Company yeah. mm-hmm. uh, is a fundamentally solid beer that has so many levels of complexity in its aroma and its that I could sit with 12 ounces of that beer and I could read a chapter of 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez and be completely satisfied by this experience. I could do any Marquez, really. I like Love in the Time uh, of Cholera, too. Right? Like, yeah. the okay, so, but it should also be noted that when I say this, uh, I am also setting everybody up for like ornate prose. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a stylist in terms of his use of language. Not so much as Nabokov, but yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But he's an imagist. Like you're going to remember a man followed yeah. by butterflies. Oh, you're yeah. not going to sure if that came from being drunk or not. So you're going to reread it and get a deeper understanding. Yeah. Gregory Rabassa did yeah, yeah. all of the, uh, original translations of his. And, uh, at one point he says, Amaranta, uh, went into the purple eggplant patch of her memory. You know, the purple eggplant match patch of her memory. Yeah. Yeah, you can't get drunk enough where some of those images don't stick. And like, right. you're gonna go look, like, did I really you read that or was enough. I too drunk? Yeah. No, but that's a solid, that's a baller pull. I like that. Marquez right. wrote that sentence. Yeah. Fuck yeah, he did. The eggplant patch of her memory? Jesus. <laughs> yeah. 
This was a this was a really cool foray into things that people could literally go do tomorrow or even tonight. Hey, I want to hear in your comments what's your drink author pairing. Absolutely, just because like I find answers to this question endlessly. Yeah, this Marquez thing, is whether like, I agree with it or not, I'm jumping in. Producer Ross wants to jump in too. Yeah. Uh, not, not, maybe not quite the same. I'm, I'm like Spencer. I usually don't drink when I try to read because, you. you know, um, but, but I did have a lot of fun once drinking crack and rum and trying to read Lovecraft aloud, uh, to myself. <laughs> that was, that was fun. Oh, there know? is a challenge component. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, like a speed run. Read it like the old medieval monks, you know, you have to read it aloud <laughs> for it to count. Uh, so is there any way for, uh, people out there to submit their own recordings of them <laughs> reading Lovecraft aloud while they're drunk in the comments section? Oh, please do. Yeah. We would love to hear that. Yeah. Uh, it's the public domain. <laughs> so normally at this point in the podcast, if you were a regular listener of the Mix Six, you'd know this would be the end of our first free five beers and we'd be moving on to our backer level only sixth beer. But because we're doing a special episode with the fine folks at Mother's Brewing, Kyle included, despite the fact that he's judged me for my choices. What up? <laughs> we're doing a full six <laughs> free beers on this one. Maybe, maybe, Kyle. <laughs> so we're going to grab another beer and then we'll be back for our last segment, Drunk Enough, where we take our most difficult topic and our most alcohol infused brains and we get after it. We'll be back on the other side. Folks, if you've made it this long, this is Beer Six, the end of the Mixed Six journey. Now, listen, if you were if you were consuming a regular Mixed Six episode, then this beer would be behind our paywall on Patreon. It would cost you two dollars to get this this beer, and then at various backer levels above this, you get this beer and a bunch more content that we put out pretty regularly, including some short minisodes, hot takes on ice, uh, an RPG adventure, and so on and so forth. Nonetheless. Here we are in our special episode at Mother's Brewing Company, and we're about to start our sixth beer, a segment we call Drunk Enough, where we take our most difficult topic and our most alcohol-addled brains, and we try to understand the world more deeply. And today we're going to talk about the value of the modern-day brewery or pub in 2017. What does it mean culturally? And while we talk about that, we're going to be drinking Mother's Rated R. So, Kyle, tell us what Rated R means to Mother's Brewing. So... This is our anniversary beer. We'd come out with this once a year. Now, very special brew. 11% Imperial Wheat Stout. Mm. Talking so about the, language. Yeah. Talk about the, talk about, the, so a wheat stout is a yeah. different thing, Kyle. Talk about that a little bit. So a stout, of course, is always going to be like characterized by its black or roasted malts, but there's a significant portion of wheat in the grain bill of this beer, which is going to give a kind of like thick creaminess in the mouthfeel. It's dark black. It's rich. It's mouth-filling. Still makes your tongue happy, but in a different way than blush might. Now, however, as an anniversary beer, we can go further, so... Let's take some coffee from the coffee ethic. Yes. Let's add that to the equation. Let's take some cocoa nibs that have been locally roasted by Askinosi Cocoa. Let's put that in as well. Yeah. 
Let's just go ahead and add a little fresh vanilla bean that's been cut open and scraped out. Let's put all of this in post-fermentation. Let's let the beer sit for a while and be infused with these flavors. And now you get an 11% imperial wheat stout with chocolate and coffee and vanilla. And it is thick. And it is complex. And there is so much going on in this. And... Boys, what do you think? It is, so we, we have talked at length about how important MILF is to this podcast. It is, Caleb and I have both universally rated it as our favorite or second favorite beer. Uh, the Imperial only- Stouts in general, and you're going to add cocoa nibs to that. Right. You, I couldn't be harder. I couldn't and, be and harder vanilla. into that. I yeah. think the vanilla and there is also the vanilla. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of the trick. I, so stouts are not typically my beer of choice, and yet the MILF, which I absolutely love, but also... I think that Rated R is probably the best beer that Mother's has done in the last year or so, in my opinion. Partially because the vanilla on the back end really smooths out what I think can kind of be some of the harsh thickness of the stout. I think that Rated R is one of the best beers the brewery's ever done, in fact. So it's absolutely delicious. You get the chocolate and the vanilla on the nose, almost that clove-like tobacco as you as you sip through it, and then the smoothness of the chocolate and the coffee as you drink. I, yeah, big fan of Rated R. While we talk about Rated or while we drink Rated R, we're talking about the value of the modern brewery. What does it mean to be a local watering hole in 2017? And I'm interested in this because, A, we love beer. B, we love talking about cultural issues. And C, we have a gentleman sitting with us who has for years now kind of run the day-to-day at a local watering hole. So, Kyle, from your, from your perspective, what is the value of the local brewery now? Well, there is the proverb, uh, 20th century proverb that says, all politics is local. Uh, this is true of everything that involves our daily lives. Uh, yes, we have all of our apps. We have all of our, uh, connectivity. But in the end, the last thing and the first thing is, day-to-day interaction with other human beings. Mm -hmm. We could not exist as a brewery in southwest Missouri. Yes, we're trying to sell our beer to as many people as possible. But first and foremost, how do we know what we're doing? It's by bringing people here, inviting them to the brewery, and coming here and talking to us. Now, in the same time, they're not just talking about our beer. They're talking about everything that we've talked about tonight. They're talking about more than that. The things that we're talking about, we can't even understand. But what we can do is we can create a space where they can come here and they can drink our locally produced beer and they can have their conversations. And their conversations might be local and they might be universal, but they can always do it right here at Mother's Brewing Company. And this is... The function that the brewery has historically always provided. Yeah. So you see yourself as sort of a part of a grand tradition in this regard and not sort of a shifting social dynamic. Like we are what we ever were in that the space in which, you know, with the social lubrication of alcohol, we grind out the rough spots of our personalities through interaction 
uh, camaraderie that may result as re- yeah as a fact. Where were the that? fundamental principles of the Enlightenment hashed right. out? Right, uh, right. This yeah, is yeah. this is for me the kind kind of one of the few spaces that is frozen in time. Uh, certainly, the beer has developed and the styles of beer have changed, and the things that we talk about have evolved or 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 really just changed. Maybe evolved is not even not even the proper term, but. But the core principle of what it is that happens in a space like this, while we sit and record here, to me doesn't change at all. I mean, I know that, you know, some episodes ago, we, for example, talked about what is the, the cultural role of a library in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we landed on there, and I, I could be wrong, I was pretty drunk when we talked about that, is that the role of the library has actually changed drastically in some ways. That it now. And per- not to the library's benefit. Not to the library's benefit. Um, but, but rather that, you know, the library lags behind where it shouldn't lag behind. And because it lags behind, it has changed drastically from where it once kind of lived at this, as this cornerstone of public knowledge or whatever. I don't think that the brewery exists or the pub exists in the same space. I think that the pub has actually become, has maintained its importance, has not changed its role all that drastically. And in some instances, given the growth of the craft beer segment over the last five years, may have even increased its significance culturally in, in local areas. And I, well, I, I, I will say that like in previous conversations, we've also had about why we drink yeah. at a more philosophical level. Yeah. Um, I will say that like, though it may be better audio to play devil's advocate, and I reserve the right to do that later in this right. segment. Um, I do tend to somewhat agree because I, you know, did not drink until late in life. Right. And I, I think I found that aside from peer pressure, which, you know, sort of broke the seal on that, what actually encouraged me to drink beyond that moment was the propensity for conversations such as the one we are having right now to occur at bars, breweries, and various other places where sure. alcohol was served. Um, and I, and the, the value I had at that, like emotionally, intrinsically, politically, intellectually. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can't really disagree with what you said, even though it might be better audio to be like, you know, au well, contraire. So one of the buzzwords of the echo chamber in which you exist is, Buzzword, an echo chamber, (laughs) which is to say that you exist inside this digital space where the opinions that you hold and that you hold forth over this space exist inside a realm where everybody who already agrees with you hears this. Here's the antidote for that. It's a physical space where everybody can come together, not related around ideological or philosophical principles, but at least united in one idea, which is that we agree that better tasting beer is better beer. Yeah. So here's a space where you can do that, and you can come in, and you can sit down, and you can play a board game with anybody else here. You can bring your own party and do that. But you also might encounter somebody you've never met before with an opinion that you hadn't considered. And now you're sitting enjoying the same beer together, and you're starting a conversation over that. This is the sort of thing that actually happens every day here at the tasting room at Mother's Brewing Company. This is a very real communal space in Springfield, Missouri, where people come together. People who did not intend to meet each other 
meet each other. People who did not intend to have these conversations now find themselves having these conversations. It's happening right here at Mother's Brewing Company. It's a very real reason that we do all of this. So here's maybe my hot take on this. Yeah. Perhaps the communal nature of the brewery pub yeah. in American or just general human life has not ever changed. Right. But perhaps the importance in sure. times of late has sure. increased. So I'm thinking of other spaces yeah. in which you might have these interactions that you're describing. And I'm thinking about their lack uh, in modern society. So I'm thinking of like church, which at least in the American political landscape has grown increasingly divisive. I'm thinking of areas like college, which goes increasingly to adjunct to online to these sort of digital spaces. And then of course the ubiquitous technology. And I'm not going to be like, Oh, darn millennials. They're eating out my walls like termites. I'm not going to like make up shit like that, but I am saying that there is sort of a, uh, dearth. Of these, you know, local physical spaces in which, and the bar, the brewery, that is one of a space that, that is a sort of a, um, traditional social custom that has in no way lessened despite all these technological and sea changes no, yeah. in our life. I think yeah. that's, that's kind of the fascinating thing that for me, uh, you know, in 2017, the hyper push towards local as a, as a, an aggressive stance against the globalization of things by way of technology. W- what I find fascinating is that as we push for more local, more grass fed, more organic, more farm raised, farm to table, grown in your backyard, all of this, all of this has never not been true at the local brewery or the local pub. And what's become more significant, especially... There's no degree of affectation to right. it when you come to a brewery. Or even drinking in general. Like, even if you want to be low-class about it. And right. let's be honest, in my upbringing, it was right. a low-class. Right. We were not right. drinking craft beer. We drink a lot of Bush You light. still buy, you know, a bunch of Anheuser-Busch, and then you go and you have a grill in someone's backyard. That's in right. a physical neighborhood. That's there right. is sort of a... A unwritten communal pact around right. alcohol that the local brewery can only enhance. There's well, something about the authenticity of experience at at a local brewer. I mean, look, you know, if I could, for, even for a moment, get outside of the the tangible experiences I have had in this space. I mean, we talked about it at the beginning of the episode. We we started this podcast. The idea of this podcast was born of you know a space a hundred yards from where we sit. During an Oktoberfest, you know, hosted by Mother's Brewing Company, I I have been a part of business deals that happened in this tasting room. I have met new people in this tasting room that I'm not friends with. But even if I could divorce myself from those things and say, and underneath all of that is the ability to commune around interesting, ever-changing beers and and things which provide instant conversation over a shared subject matter, which is alcohol. Um, and, and what that does in terms of lubricating a conversation or a relationship, those, those things I don't believe or maybe I don't hope. In the same way that we've talked lovingly about the nature of board games as they transition to online apps and why the board game proper is still an important part of getting to know with, getting to know and interacting with other humans, I don't think that the brewery has changed that place. Well, perhaps not to get excessively Freudian about it, this podcast develops from a recognition from the similarity of that sensation. Uh, of we've sort of gone back in time to right. a more, a more uh, authentic interaction Absolutely. in the local space amongst beer. 
And that sort of same similar sensation we got by sort of anachronistically choosing to put down our phones yes. and getting little cards and people and moving them around a physical table Absolutely. in order to facilitate interaction. Right. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps a sensation of like, oh, human interaction, this thing I've become alienated from due to modern life. Perhaps it's that, that through line that connected our, you know, perennial obsessions in this podcast. Yeah. Of, Board games and drinking a bunch of booze. Yeah. Well, one, I'd like to say, if you could strike the reference to perennial. Mm. Sorry. Yep. Okay. Apologies. Sorry, sorry. It is during it is a, the, it is this particular episode. It is a brewery. I typically also, like <laughs> are you saying that what we offer here at Mother's Brewing Company is somehow fundamental to our identity as human beings, as a species? That has perhaps a larger function. Are you saying somehow, Caleb, and maybe you, Spencer, that Mother's Brewing Company somehow offers something fundamental to what it means to be human being? It's a sponsored episode. Yes, I am. I am saying excellent. Well played, gentlemen. I am a slave to what has happened, and yes, I do believe that it is. But but I also think that extrapolating beyond. Mother's Brewing Company, I mean, I think the nature of the space that we're describing is fundamental to what I believe is, is, is part of this human thing, which is the need to commune and interact with others for, for something beyond the baser instincts, even. Well, no, and I mean, in a very, like, pragmatic level, representing the brewery, I have to say, look, our backyard is open to everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you have children, and you want to bring a frisbee along, and you want to throw the frisbee, and you want to bring your dog and your children, and you want to hang out for a while, this is actually a space that accommodates all of that? Right. It really is a community-based space. Yeah. Right. That happens to make great beer. Yeah. Double whammy. Yeah. yeah. Bingo, so. bango. Yeah. So, I mean, to, you know, to put, a, to put a bow on it, and maybe Caleb's already done this. Um, you know, may- maybe this is at the core of why it is we're so interested in the things that we're interested in. It's that they, they, they kind of transcend the, 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 you know, the fleeting digital space, even though it is very much a digitally delivered item. Uh, these are the things that interest us in an enduring way. And this is a place where those interests can find one another in an enduring method. Uh, and so that's what we've done here. And so, you know, from, from us, we really want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this. We want to thank Kyle and Dave and Brad for, and Mother's Brewing Company for having us, for letting us drink a bunch of really fucking great beer, for talking with us about the science of beer, the art of beer, and all of this other stuff that Kyle set and shot the shit with us over, which we think is at the core of what this podcast does. We also want to let you know, if you've been with us the whole time, thank you so much. If you're not already a follower on Twitter, at The Mix 6, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Mix 6, we would love to see you for some of our other episodes. You can find them all on our website, themix6.com, and on patreon.com slash The Mix 6, where you can get additional content. Thank furthermore, you. if you're not following Mother's Brewing on Twitter, furthermore, get on that. Just fix your fucking life. Yeah, we're all over the social media. All over the social media. And shout out to both. Both Anne, is it Maudlin or Malden? Anne Malden. Anne Malden, who is a social media guru. She is fucking phenomenal. And Josh Sullivan, the marketing director at Mothers, who do great work on their social media. Follow them on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You'll absolutely have a blast and get to see all of their latest offerings. Thanks so much for being with us this whole time. Uh, Once again, I'm Spencer. 
I'm Caleb. And this has been the Mix 6 Podcast with Kyle Jeffries and, of course, as always, producer Ross. Hopefully we'll see you somewhere else in a different episode or somewhere down the line. And in the meantime, play some board games, drink some beer, talk about pop culture, and maybe when you're drunk enough, do some philosophizing. We'll see you later.